Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, COVID may be less deadly, but it's still plenty virulent. Some new numbers on healthcare spending will probably surprise you. The NDP lose one of their MPPs to a challenge from within the family. And farewell speeches in the legislature from MPPs not running again, including a particularly memorable one from Ontario's only female premier ever. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, it's interesting. We've barely talked at all about COVID-19 on this podcast for the past few weeks. There is certainly a false sense of security that the pandemic is somehow now over. The mask mandate may be gone. The daily COVID-19 briefings are long behind us. Obviously, with an election less than two months away, the government has wanted to convey an impression that COVID isn't dominating the way uh, it used to, except for, okay, you fill in the gaps here, except for what? Well, except that COVID is coming back uh, with a bit of a vengeance. Uh, there is a, a new uh, sub-variant of the Omicron variant known as uh, BA2. Uh, it is uh, extremely virulent. It, uh, it is not uh, as, as fatal as previous variants that we've had to contend with uh, through this pandemic, but it is enough of a concern that the province has announced a new eligibility for uh, fourth vaccine doses. If you are over 60, uh, you are generally eligible. Uh, there are some rules about, you know, not getting it too close to your third dose and not getting it too close to uh, uh, if you have had COVID-19 in the last uh, little while. So you definitely want to consult with your uh, doctor or, or a healthcare professional. Uh, but, you know, the government has made this change to try and uh, you know, increase people's safety uh, with this new wave. Uh, Minister of Health Christine Elliott said, uh, you know, the rise we are seeing in new cases uh, was expected. And, uh, you know, the government is saying that voluntary masking and uh, the use of uh, vaccines and now uh, the, the recent approval of the antiviral drug Paxlovid, uh, the government says these are uh, enough going forward to, uh, you know, endure this new wave of uh, COVID-19 without a, a massive threat to the hospital system. Uh, worth noting that other provinces are taking different uh, directions. Quebec and PEI, for example, uh, have extended their indoor mask mandates. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> that's the thing about federalism. Lots of different people go in lots of different directions. That is true. <laughs> now, while we're talking COVID, the public finally got a public appearance of someone who has been really hard to find lately. Who might we be talking about? We are talking, of course, about the province's chief medical officer of health, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore. Uh, back when the pandemic first started, uh, Moore's predecessor used to give uh, daily briefings. Uh, then those became, uh, I guess, bi-weekly and then weekly briefings. Um, and, and then Dr. Moore... Uh, about more than a month ago, uh, basically stopped doing briefings altogether. Uh, until Monday afternoon, he, he hadn't given any kind of media availability, uh, as they say, in more than a month, and he had actually refused uh, interview requests from several of our colleagues in the press gallery. Uh, you know, of course, uh, the government is never going to admit this, but, it, you know, you don't have to 
engage in a lot of guesswork here. You just look at the calendar, right? Uh, the Tories are trying very hard to make sure that uh, COVID news and uh, hospitalizations and questions about COVID response policies uh, do not dominate the news uh, in the lead up to an election. And every time the chief medical officer of health is out there in front of a TV camera, it just reminds people about one thing that, you know, COVID-19 is still here and it's uh, still frankly capable of determining the course of events. No, I guess you wouldn't want to remind people that more than 12,500 people have died over the last couple of years from COVID-19. And I'll tell you this, I, I, I watched the news conference as, as I'm sure you did. And, you know, the first many questions to the doctor were all focused on where have you been for the last month and why haven't you been giving us briefings? And I'll confess, John Michael, to a certain amount of sympathy for the doctor because I, I can completely imagine that it was not he who decided not to give briefings and not to give interviews to journalists. I, I mean, I have I'm only speculating here. I have no empirical evidence on this, but it it strains credulity to think that somebody in the government didn't say to him, keep your head down. We don't want you out there. I mean, that's not crazy to say, is it? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Moore got a lot of praise when he was the local medical officer of health uh, in Kingston for uh, his clarity of communication, for how uh, frequently and how often he was uh, communicating the, the state of things in Kingston and, and the, the region uh, with the public. He, he was uh, uh, very innovative in, in how he communicated things. And so I, I don't think that his... Um, let me put it this way. I think we have evidence to suggest that he is not intrinsically opposed to the idea of doing the kind of public communications work that uh, being a public health officer requires. Um, and so, you know, given his past, uh, I think you have to look at some kind of external factor to, to answer the question of why he has suddenly uh, gone so quiet. Now, it could just be that the Queen's Park Press Gallery is just not as fun to be around, which, you know, <laughs> that well, might that, be true for some of us. <laughs> I was going to say, that may very well be true, uh, but I suspect it has very little to do with the explanation. But okay, so the first many questions were about where have you been? Uh, that wasn't the reason Dr. Moore agreed to have a press conference on Monday afternoon anyway. What ostensibly was the actual reason that he decided to pick his head up after a month in hiding? Uh, right. There was actually a change in government policy uh, that the, the medical officer of health was out to uh, uh, announce and explain. Uh, the government is changing its rules for how it distributes uh, the drug Paxlovid. We've already mentioned it in this episode, but this is you know not a vaccine. It is a, a therapeutic drug that if it's administered within the first few days of someone uh, showing symptoms of COVID, uh, this drug has shown that it can uh, dramatically reduce severe outcomes. Uh, the problem is that it has been uh, actually very difficult for people to get their hands on the drug, even in cases where they are eligible. So uh, the province is expanding eligibility for Paxlovid to anyone who is 18 or older and is immunocompromised, uh, anyone who is 70 or over, regardless of their immune status, uh, and some younger cohorts based on their vaccination status and medical conditions. Uh, they are also increasing the distribution of Paxlovid uh, through participating pharmacies starting today. This one's actually a, a pretty important point just because one of the factors that was making it very difficult for people to get their hands on uh, Paxlovid is that it was, uh, some people had to travel very far distances to get to an assessment center. So hopefully that will now be behind us. Well, that's important new information for the medical officer of health to get out to the public. So we're glad he did that. But I suspect you and I and the Queen's Park Press Gallery aren't the only people who um, perhaps 
were raising a spocky and eyebrow, as someone once said, uh, as to the doctor's month-long absence from interviews? No, certainly uh, members of the opposition parties uh, have noticed this and have been making quite a, a bit of noise about uh, the chief medical officer of health's absence. Uh, Liberal uh, House leader John Fraser accused the government of placing Dr. Moore under a, a quote-unquote gag order so that he doesn't spoil the government's messaging during the election campaign. Uh, Fraser said, uh, I know the premier doesn't want COVID to interfere with his election plans, and that's why he's muzzling the chief medical officer of health. Uh, Christine Elliott uh here notably, I guess, not just the Minister of Health, but also the Deputy Premier, you know, angrily denying that, uh, saying Dr. Moore is free to speak publicly, uh, you know, saying what the member opposite is saying is ridiculous and it's not based on fact whatsoever. It's absolutely not the case. Is there anybody who is not a card-carrying conservative who believes that? You know, we should say, of course, that Moore did actually address his his prolonged absence at his briefing on Monday, uh, saying that he he was re-emerging to remind people to continue masking and get their third doses if they haven't already. Uh, but he also said, you know, the government is, is not revisiting uh, its choices so far on things like uh, mask mandates or uh, any kind of measures to encourage more vaccinations either. Uh, obviously, Ontario hasn't had a, a vaccine mandate uh, for some time now outside of a, uh, I guess, a handful of, of uh, you know, high risk settings. So, you know, uh, it, it was a, it was a bit of an odd message, because on the one hand, you had more saying, uh, you know, uh, masking and vaccinations and Paxlovid are all uh, extremely important parts of the government's strategy to uh, fight the pandemic. Uh, but we're not changing anything about masking, we're not changing anything about vaccines. And oh, here, here's the good news, we're changing some choices about Paxlovid. <laughs> Well, the Conservatives may think it's good politics to try to control the narrative, but with the subvariant BA2 now so prevalent, uh, you do have to wonder whether it's medical malpractice to deny a platform to the top public health official in the province. Yeah, so uh, it, it's interesting, you know, after SARS, the Liberal government uh made a bunch of changes to the job of the chief medical officer of health that was supposed to make the office uh, more independent. And and specifically, uh, the the chief medical officer has a, a power in the law to basically, you know, freely communicate to the public whatever they want. Um, and yet that doesn't seem to be happening. And, and I suspect there's some interesting backroom discussions about why that isn't uh, happening. Uh, instead, we have uh, the health minister uh, who seems to effectively control the microphone as far as health policy goes these days. Um, you know, she's not a, a public health expert, but she clearly has her her own marching orders uh, from uh, cabinet and from uh, the, the PC party's re-election uh, team about, you know, keeping the temperature down and, and ensuring that COVID doesn't, you know, overwhelm the narrative that the government is trying to, to create. And, you know, Obviously, uh, you know, this close to an election, uh, the narrative the government wants is, you know, positive news, positive news, positive news, lots of big spending announcements, more positive news. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I would say, you know, in theory, you could actually make the argument that this is a very good thing because Elliot is with Doug Ford, uh, you know, a democratically elected uh, holder of an office and and. Dr. Moore is not. He, he is, is not a, a, a democratically accountable. We are heading into an election. You could make the argument that, uh, in fact, we want uh, Christian Elliott uh, to be in front of the cameras and uh, answering for this government's policies. The problem is I'm not sure that the government has been doing much of that either, aside from just 
saying that they're doing what they're doing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we also have uh, NDP Deputy Leader Sarah Singh, uh, you know, who pointed to recent media statements from uh, Dr. Peter Uni, uh, the uh, head of the COVID-19 science table, who says Ontario is, quote, creating a tidal wave uh, by doing away with uh, almost all public health measures at this point, uh, Singh accused the PC government of playing down the seriousness of the situation for political gain, uh, saying, quote, the premier believes that we have uh, the hospital beds to handle this, but the reality here in Ontario is that we don't have the staff for those beds. As much as the premier might wish that this pandemic is over, it isn't. And she is right. It is not. Well, let's talk money. We talk a lot on this podcast about reports from the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario because... Well, they always have something interesting to say about the province's finances and the state of the books. And a report that came out this week comparing Ontario's finances to other provinces, well, it did not disappoint on that front. What did the report have to say? Uh, so this is a look at how Ontario stacks up uh, with uh, uh, other provinces. And so they're basing this on StatsCan numbers from the 2020-21 uh, fiscal year. Uh, they are using federal definitions of taxes, uh, spending and revenue. Uh, these are slightly different than what we would commonly use provincially uh, for the, the real uh, dorks like myself. Uh, things like LCBO revenue, uh, you would not normally talk about that as taxes in Ontario's public account but here they are counted as taxes. Um, so some detail stuff like that is, is you know, like I say, fun for us dorks, but... Um, Let the record show he said it twice. I haven't yet said it once about it. <laughs> uh, but because this is using the StatsCan numbers, it allows for a bit of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between uh, other provinces, and the results are interesting. Uh, Ontario's program spending per capita is the lowest in the country. Uh, Ontario spent $11,794 per person uh, in uh, 2020 to 21 to fund public programs. Uh, this is program spending. When we say program spending, we're talking about uh, basically uh, the stuff that the government does aside from debt service. Um, so program spending is one of those basic measures of, of, you know, how much is the government doing in any year? Um, as we say, Ontario's program spending is lowest of the uh, 10 provinces, uh, well below uh, the the national average of uh, $13,754, according to the FAO. Uh, on healthcare specifically, and we are in a pandemic, kind of a relevant uh, factor, uh, the province spends $4,800 per person. The national average is $5,300, so about $5,000 less per person uh, in Ontario relative to uh, the average of other provinces. Uh, that is... Uh, consistent for years. Ontario has, has spent uh, the, the, the least amount since at least 2008, according to the FAO's numbers. Uh, but we do spend more on education. Uh, we are the fourth highest uh, per capita spender on education uh, of the uh, 10 provinces. I should say here that I, I remember covering press conferences 40 years ago when people were decrying the Bill Davis government, the sainted Bill Davis government, because it was spending 10th out of 10 in provinces on, for example, post-secondary education. And the explanation given back then was, yes, but we have economies of scale here. It is, it is less expensive per person to educate 2 million students in the province of Ontario than it would be uh, you know, to do the same for several thousand students in Prince Edward Island, for example. That's the argument. And, and anyway, these are the numbers. Does the Financial Accountability Office, do they weigh in with a conclusion, with any opinions as to whether or not Ontario's standing uh, is a good thing or a bad thing? 
No, they they never. Well, I, our, our listeners can go back and uh, listen to our interview with Peter Weltman a few weeks ago, in which I think we had to pull teeth to get him to editorialize slightly. Um, and no, the, the the FAO is is not out there to uh, make a judgment in the same way that uh, the Auditor General Bonnie Lissick is is a bit more empowered to say like this is not a good use of of provincial money, and and she will do those with the value for money audits. Uh, the FAO is is putting the numbers out there and letting uh, MPPs, citizens, journalists uh, uh, draw their own conclusions about whether those are good or bad. What is interesting about these numbers, though, is that they seem to tell two very different stories from what you would think was the case over the last couple of years. And let's just pick health and education spending, for example. Based on what we've heard since the pandemic hit, you would think that we were spending nothing at all on education and basically giving the store away when it came to health care. And in fact, the Financial Accountability Office seems to be saying it's quite the opposite when you compare it to other provinces. What are your theories on that? You know, I read that report and I think it's just so hard to to change the heading for the ship of state, right? Uh, the liberals were in power for 15 years. And in that time, education was more or less always a priority. The liberals lowered student-teacher ratios. They created full-day kindergarten they just consistently spent uh, a lot of money on education. And, you know, it, it was very popular for them to do so. And uh, they were rewarded. There were numerous elections where the teacher unions uh, hammered in signs and knocked on doors for the liberal government because they were they were happy at the policies that led to more teachers being hired. Yes, absolutely. They did. And, you know, what we've seen from the Tories uh, in the past four years has been relatively little in the way of absolute cuts to education spending. Rather, they have just tried to keep education spending uh, growing slower than other parts of the budget, including healthcare. Now, that can still result in cuts to actual services in the classrooms, especially as inflation runs faster than spending increases, as it almost certainly will this year. Um, but if you want to know why Ontario spends more on education than a lot of other provinces, I think the short answer is that the Liberals were in power for 15 years, and the Tories haven't really reversed a lot of that Liberal spending in schools. While we're talking spending, we should talk debts and deficits for a second here, because over the past two years, we have seen, well, plain and simple, the biggest numbers ever in those two categories, debt and deficit. Ontario, perhaps not surprisingly, since we are the biggest province in the country, had the largest debt that is the accumulation year over year over year over year of deficits of any province in the country. Now, if we had to pay it all back, if we had to pay back the entire debt today, each one of us would owe nearly $22,000. And the national average is just over $13,000. So that gives you an indication of how much more indebted Ontario is compared to other provinces. However, is that as catastrophic as it sounds? No, and this is, you know, an interesting aspect of Ontario's economy. The FAO says those levels are manageable because Ontario is uh, generally rated very well by credit agencies uh, because the economy is both very large and also very diversified. Uh, you know, Ontario, uh, obviously, some industries are bigger and more important in Ontario than others, but Ontario isn't totally dependent on uh 
fishing the way, you know, uh, Newfoundland used to be so dependent on the cod fishery, for example, or oil the way uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan still, you know, to this day, uh, rely hugely on uh, oil and gas revenues. So because we have both a large and very diversified economy, we generally get to pay very low interest rates. And at the moment, uh, the government is still able to sell uh, Ontario government bonds relatively easily. we have no real difficulty uh, finding financial institutions who want to to buy our debt. And, you know, not that long ago, I think you and I can recall, you know, uh, the opposition parties. And, you know, I'm thinking of when the Tories were in opposition, you know, they regularly warned that, you know, credit rating agencies were, were going to downgrade Ontario. And in fact, Ontario has been downgraded periodically in the last decade or so. Um it doesn't seem to have actually stopped anybody from buying our debt, though. <laughs> well, everything's relative, and Ontario's debt is still uh, pretty worth uh, purchasing. And I guess we'll find out more some point in the next few weeks when uh, this government brings down its final pre-election budget as to what the state of the books and the debts and the deficits uh, truly are. But in summation, what do you think we should take away from all the numbers we've just presented? You know, we talk about how uh, Ontario spends the least in program spending relative to other provinces. And I wrote something for TVO.org a few weeks ago now about how, uh, you know, between the recent child care agreements that uh, now all the provinces have signed and uh, just the, the, the demographic reality of an aging population, the cost of government is going to be higher in the future than it is now. Uh, there's just like uh, these choices are now baked in, um, as I put it in the piece, right? The, you know, the people who are going to need hospital beds and long-term care beds in 20 years uh, already exist. Uh, that Those Ontarians are here. They are alive today. We just don't have the beds for them yet. And so uh, these costs are going to go up. And what I take from the uh, FAO's numbers, uh, you know, taxes are going to need to increase at some point, not in the very distant future. We're not talking, you know, 50 years, you know, maybe more like 10 or 20 years. And where that money comes from, you know, it might be a provincial tax increase, it might be federal transfers, but itself might come from a federal tax increase. Uh, You know, it's going to be very interesting to see how that problem is resolved. There is a theory that says today's deficits are tomorrow's tax increases. And unless you get massive economic growth from the economy, um, you're looking at more taxes or less spending. I mean, there's not too many different ways you can skin this cat. Whoops, am I allowed to say that on the radio? I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) Milton Friedman said, to spend is to tax. There you go. (laughs) Well, let's circle back to a story that we brought people last week. And we did mention then that the NDP were experiencing a rare nomination fight within the family, as it were, against a sitting MPP. Kevin Yard. He's the MPP for Brampton North, and he was challenged by someone named Sandeep Singh. And we just follow, we, we will follow up on that and let you know that Mr. Singh defeated Mr. Yard for the nomination. Uh, big time, actually. He claims to have won 88% of the votes. So Kevin Yard's tenure as the MPP for Brampton North will end when this house is dissolved in May. And Sandeep Singh will be the NDP candidate for Brampton North. That is a highly unusual development for a sitting member to be challenged from within his or her own party. And you know, of course, this means that if Sandeep Singh wins the seat on June 2nd, and if Sarah Singh and Garatan Singh also win their Brampton seats, it'll mean three NDP MPPs from Brampton, all with the last name Singh, which I have to believe would be some kind of record. Anyway, let's get back to it. How, how's the NDP handling this whole issue? 
There is some consternation about this all within the party. Uh, two New Democrat MPPs have gone on the record as saying it sure doesn't make the NDP look too good in black communities. I, I think they would have expected the party to better protect Kevin Yard since he is a sitting member. And while I, I think the current NDP caucus is, is certainly the most diverse they've had in uh, my lifetime. Uh, there's not that many black MPPs uh, sitting in the legislature. Uh, however, the party's view is even if you're a member, you've got to be, you know, selling memberships all the time. And, uh, you know, you have to be prepared to uh, fight a, a nomination challenge, uh, at least the, the language of the NDP's party constitution is that, you know, these contests all still have to be democratic. Uh, they don't, uh, as a general rule, uh, uh, protect sitting members the way other parties do, the way, for example, the Tories have in this election cycle. Uh, so from the party's perspective, you know, this is uh, regrettable, but it's also uh, life as an elected politician. You got to wonder how awkward it will now be for the NDP to caucus between, you know, the emergence of this development and the the end of when this house sits, Kevin Yard's going to walk into caucus and everybody's going to look at him and he's going to look at them and mm, it's just going to be awkward. Now, technically, we should say Mr. Yard has been green lit, of course, by the party to run as a candidate for the NDP. So theoretically, he could run somewhere else. There's still about 25 ridings that have no NDP candidate yet. So he could try to plant his flag in one of those. There's also the option of standing down and running in the municipal election in October somewhere in Brampton. Uh, so he's got some options is what I'm saying. But but this is a big deal as it relates to the outcome of the coming general election. And John Michael, you're going to tell the folks why. <laughs> you really uh, can't. Uh, overstate the importance of, of contests, uh, in particular, you know, in, in the Western GTA, uh, the seats in Brampton are extremely uh, competitive. Uh, the NDP won the most seats in Brampton in the 2018 election. Uh, they got three. The Progressive Conservatives have two. The Liberals have none at the moment. Uh, that followed years of work that the NDP had put into, uh, you know, developing the party in Brampton. And uh, but it is still very competitive territory and you know Brampton in particular the western GTA generally uh, these are uh, seats that if you want to win and form government or even just you know potentially be a kingmaker in a minority you really want to do well there so you know this race and let's let's say the controversy around this nomination you know if it hurts NDP chances uh, in Brampton for example uh, that would be bad for the party and their chances well and a couple of black NDP members of the legislature have already come forward saying how disappointed they are in their own party for failing to adequately protect Kevin Yard. Um, clearly, the NDP believes that that if they can tap into the South Asian community uh, with uh, Mr. Singh, they've got a better shot at winning that seat. Uh, Mr. Yard only won it by fewer than 500 votes last time. So that is the bargain they are making this time. However, let's not leave this completely on a down note, because while we're looking at NDP nominations, the party did get some very good big news out of downtown Toronto last week. Uh, City Councillor Kristen Wong Tam intends to run for the NDP in the riding of Toronto Centre. There is a pending vacancy there because the riding's current member, Suze Morrison, isn't seeking re-election for health reasons. Now, for those of you listening who live outside Toronto or may not know Wong Tam's name, she is a very high-profile person on the municipal scene in the downtown of the capital city. She, I think, gives the NDP a better chance to hold that seat than the current MPP would have had. I don't know. That's my take. <laughs> 
it's also, I think, worth noting here that, uh, you know, uh, because of uh, Ontario's municipal elections laws, uh, Wong Tam is actually not required by law to resign her seat on Toronto City Council, uh, but she has indicated that she is going to do so. Uh, when she announced this, she said she's informed the city clerk that her last day will be May 4th, when we expect the provincial election to formally be called. Uh, my understanding of the relevant rules here is that council will actually have to appoint a replacement for her for just a few months. Her successor will either get to run again for that seat in October or will be replaced by someone new. May the 4th, of course, having a more popular name in the McGrath household. What What is the significance of that date? Uh, well, it's Star Wars Day for all right-thinking people, but I think I'm <laughs> going to be busy with something else that day, unfortunately. I think we both will be, yeah. But uh, may the 4th be with you anyway. There we go. Let's circle back to something we talked about last week again. Uh, we told you that um, the NDP had its election slogan. And the slogan is strong, ready, working for you. And now the party has got some campaign ads out there as well. And we're going to play one of them for you now, and then we shall discuss it. Matthew, if you would, let's roll that. This election, we have the chance to defeat Doug Ford and fix the things important to you. To fix health and seniors care, tackle the cost of housing, and give our kids a better future. I'm Andrea Horvath. Together, we can get it done. Now, was there anything there, John Michael, that sounded a little bit familiar to you? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, those last three words, get it done, uh, that's also the PC Party's election slogan. Um, don't know who's copying from whom here, uh, but getting it done, clearly a, a recurring theme, uh, given that over the past two years, uh, there was so much that we couldn't get done because of the pandemic. Indeed. Found that funny that the two of them would use that same expression. And I, I you know what? I suspect they both came to it independently. I'm not sure anybody's copying anybody. Well, no, it's, it's entirely possible. I guess I would say that... <sighs> I hope this doesn't like. I don't want this to come off as a partisan dig at the NDP, but in the context of the government running for re-election, get it done makes sense to me, right? We've been in power for four years, but there's more left to do. Let's get it done. Um, I, I don't understand what the significance of get it done is when you're at the opposition party looking to replace the government. They'll have 30 plus days to explain it to you, Mr. McGrath. Okay, well, I, I look forward to the instruction on rhetoric here. <laughs> um, we seem to be doing quite a bit of this this week, but again, I, I want to follow up on something that we've touched on in the past, and that is uh, regular listeners of the podcast will remember a couple of weeks ago, we had the independent MPP, Lindsay Park, on the program. I think she of the riding of Durham to discuss her private member's bill on loneliness. She wants the province to come up with a policy strategy for tackling one of the most problematic issues facing us these days, particularly since the pandemic hit. She got some good news this week. What's the latest there? Uh, her private member's bill passed second reading in the legislature. Uh, anybody who remembers their uh, civics classes will know that a, a bill has to be read three times to become law. Uh, at the moment, the bill has been sent to a committee for further study. Uh, this, let's say it is a, a fair question to ask whether it will ever emerge from a committee, but uh, certainly MPP Park hopes that it will get through that committee and voted on for third reading before uh, the plug is pulled on the legislature uh, in May for the election. Uh, maybe a, a bit of context here. Usually by the end of the section, there's uh, like a, a one-day blitz where everybody all of the, the parties, you know, have some backroom negotiations about whose private member's bill will get get those third reading votes. And there's, you know, horse trading and all these kinds of things. Um, it's not clear to me whether we'll get a day like that before the election is called. But if we do, obviously, you know, MPP Park will hope 
then we'll have her fingers and toes crossed uh, that she gets uh, a third reading vote on that bill. Okay, let's move now a long way away from campaigning and partisanship and pending elections with this final item. JMM, you and I both know that much of what the cameras cover in the House is very partisan back and forth. Some of it gets quite nasty. But last week, we had one of those rare moments where everyone was on their best behavior because the MPPs who aren't running again gave their farewell speeches. And we thought it would be nice just to hear short snippets from those MPP speeches last week. So here we go. We're going to hear just a short snippet from all of them, starting with Perry Sound Muskoka MPP Norm Miller, who was wearing the tartan jacket of his father, the late Frank Miller, who was Ontario's 18th premier. Today I'm wearing, in memory of my father, Frank Miller, his Royal Stuart Tartan jacket. The same jacket that he wore to deliver a number of Ontario budgets as treasurer, as it was then called, in the Davis government from 1973, 78 to 83. And he's not the only son of a premier in this legislature, Mr. McGrath, as you well know. Uh, yes, we have uh, Mike Harris uh, Jr. And uh, is it just... Who else? Is That's it. Oh, okay. we, have, we have the daughter of a prime minister as well. Uh, yes, Car- uh, Carolyn Mulroney, yes. Right, right. But two, two sons of former premiers. There we go. That's Norm Miller. Uh, here's a Windsor Tecumseh MPP, Percy Hatfield, uh, who gave us Ontario's Poet Laureate. But on the whole, my almost nine years here will have been most positive. Choosing the glass half full has always been my prerogative. Very clever. Percy's whole speech was rhyming couplets. Yes, it was, it was nice. <laughs> yeah. Here's Christine Elliott, the health minister from Newmarket Aurora, also standing down, not seeking re-election. Speaker, I have to say that my sons are in somewhat of a unique position as uh, political children, I guess. They're now 31. Uh, but since they were four years old, they've had one parent or another, and sometimes both, involved in politics. So I, I, I think that they are going to... Uh, be happy to see me leave uh, politics. And I, I love them very much, and I look forward to spending more time with them. That was a sweet moment. And of course, yeah, she only gave one age because, of course, the three boys are triplets. Yes, that's one of those details about her that I, I, I periodically forget and then have to relearn. This, uh, but yeah, that's a significant one. Uh, here's Rima Burns-McGowan from Beaches East York. Of course, we had uh, Burns-McGowan on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Never forget that poverty is a policy choice. Homelessness is a policy choice. That was a very strong, stark reminder to the members of the legislature, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I think very fitting uh, for uh, this MPP in particular, really um, uh, leaving the legislature uh, with an indelible mark of, of what she wanted to bring to it. Here's Jim McDonnell from Stormont, Dundas, South Glengarry in eastern Ontario. I follow in the footsteps of Hugh McDonnell and John McDonnell, both representing Glengarry County in the first legislature of Upper Canada in 1792. John elected to the first speaker. Can you imagine that? 1792, the McDonnells go back at Queen's Park. That's that's a little further even than me, Mr. McGrath. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. No, but, you know, it's... Uh, it, the, the building has a story, but, of course, the people inside the building also have uh, their stories, too. Here, here. Uh, here is Randy Pettipiece from Perth, Wellington. You know our names are engraved on that granite wall, and mine will be there three times uh, when I leave. And I thought of that. It's kind of neat to see your name engraved in granite before the final slab is put on. <laughs> you don't see you, that one. You never, you never get to see that one, you know? 
you know, for a guy who didn't get a lot of attention when he was an MPP, that was a very funny speech, I got to say. No, it was, it was a good line. And, you know, I guess uh, unless you've been to Queen's Park, you might not actually know that, yes, there, there are walls of the legislature where uh, the, the names of MPPs are carved into the wall. And, uh, you know, you can always see after each election and the new legislature is sworn in, it, it, it always takes some time. But then you, go, you, you find that new corner of the legislature where they've, they've put some new names up on the wall. It's, it's always it's one of the things I enjoy about the place. <laughs> Here's Bill Walker now, a former cabinet minister, deputy speaker, and from the Bruce Peninsula, the great Bruce Peninsula. Go ahead, Bill Walker. Great riding of Bruce Gray Owen Sound. I pinch myself every single day that Billy, little Billy Walker could stand in this august house of democracy. I know there's a ton of cynicism about politics, but when they say these things, they really do mean it. I've seen it. I've seen it for decades. They really do mean it. How lucky they are to walk into that building every day and do the work that they do. Uh, some of them have been uh, lucky enough to uh, win an election, then unlucky enough to be defeated, and then lucky enough to return. And uh, one of those people is Jane McKenna, MPP for Burlington, who will not be running again for, uh, on June 2nd. In the 40th Parliament, my name appears below the former Premier, Honourable Dalton McGuinty. And I always chuckle at this time because I remember the time I, told, I asked him if he could put his big boy pants on yes. and show some leadership. McKenna and McGinty together again, as they are for eternity on the walls in the legislature. Uh, she's standing down to run for the chairmanship of Halton Region, so her political career may or may not be over. Here's Daryl Cramp. He's the MPP from Hastings, Lennox and Addington in eastern Ontario. But in a very, very somber voice, though, he said to me, and pointed his finger at me and said, but don't you ever, ever forget, it is exclusive in its responsibility. And so that was truly a very humbling moment for me. Some advice that Daryl Cramp got uh, when he was uh, running for Queen's Park. He served at all three levels of government, JMM, municipal, federal, and now provincial. And his advice there, the advice he got, reminds me a lot of the advice Dalton McGinty got on his first day at Queen's Park, which was... All the wisdom you need to know about this job can be summed up on a sign you will see on the south steps of Queen's Park. And the sign reads, watch your step. <laughs> uh, and here is uh, a clip from uh, the farewell speech of Christina Midas from Scarborough Centre. I vividly remember knocking on doors in my riding as I would get through two or three doors before having to run to my car to puke. And then I would start the cycle over again, going to doors, running back to my car. Not exactly what I had pictured when I thought about getting elected. The puking part, that is. That's uh, Christina Midas, who, of course, was pregnant while she was running for uh, MPP back in 2018. Now, uh, Steve, you might have guessed that I would actually search Hansard for this. But as far as I can tell, that is only the fifth time that the word <laughs> puke has been used in the legislature. I wonder what the previous four were. You know, she's had she got three kids now. She had all three kids during her one term at Queen's Park. That that's got to be a record as well. I, I think, yes, that must be. Uh, I, the earliest uh, use of puke uh, was, I believe, in 1978. Uh, and it was a, uh, uh, well, a, a, a New Democrat MPP who was upset about an ocu Occupational Safety and, and Health uh, Act that the uh, Tory, was, uh, the Bill Davis government was bringing in. Apparently, Ontarians were too classy to puke before 1978, <laughs> or at least to mention that they were doing it anyway. Well, we have saved, I think, the most historic one for last, and here's Kathleen Wynne, the outgoing MPP for Don Valley West, and of course, the 25th Premier of the province of Ontario. John Fraser steadily 
loyally leading our crew for the past four years. John has a piece of my heart. He created space for me. He helped our tiny team coalesce. He helped us to punch above our weight with the very best good humor. I actually believe that Ted Lasso is fashioned after John Fraser. <laughs> I actually believe that. Now, if you haven't seen the show, I think it's on Apple, isn't it? Apple TV? Yes, Apple TV. If you haven't seen Ted Lasso, that line is not going to mean anything. But if you have seen it, that's a very good line. Ted Lasso, of course, is this soccer co American soccer coach who's now uh, coaching over in the UK, who is just relentlessly optimistic and happy about everything in life, despite everything crumbling down around him. And that's a pretty good way to describe John Fraser's role over the last four years, isn't it? No, it was really lovely. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess I'll... I'll tell our listeners that uh, both of our quotes of the week this week are also from uh, that speech from uh, the former premier. And uh, the the speech itself was, uh, I, I thought, very nicely done. But I, I liked that clip in particular because the story of what the Liberal Party has gone through in the last four years, as, as she speaks, you can feel the emotion of, of everything that they have gone through, just a, a really devastating defeat in 2018, and slowly uh, uh, clawing their way back into uh, contention, uh, they hope, in time for the next election. There was a really nice moment, actually, after all of the speeches were done. And, of course, they left Kathleen Wynne for the end, as they should have, the most dramatic speech for the end. After it was over, everybody came over and shook hands with her, including Christine Elliott. And I thought that was a really interesting moment because of the history that the two of them have, right? You want to go into that? Well, sure. I, you know, um, uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, after the 2014 election, created the post of the patient ombudsman that was supposed to be uh, a patient advocate. I forget what the title is actually. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody who was supposed to look out for people in Ontario's hospitals. And uh, the first person to get the job was uh, Christine Elliott. Uh, but it was on the expectation that Christine Elliott was done with elected politics. Uh, and then we all remember what happened in 2018 and, and uh, the, the sudden vacancy in the PC party leadership. And uh, suddenly Christine Elliott was not done with uh, elected politics. And I, I remember the day that she uh, resigned from the position because I had spent much of the day emailing the Ministry of Health, you know, the Liberal Minister of Health at the time, uh, emailing their staff being like, uh, so has Elliot resigned yet? <laughs> and th th they, uh, at that point, were saying things like, you may know before we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that there there is a, a great capacity among many people in politics to be able to look the other way at moments like this. Uh, because I noticed Tim Hudak, the former PC party leader, was up in the gallery watching the speeches as well. And why did he come? He came to watch Kathleen Wynne's final speech, despite the fact she defeated him in an election, despite the fact she sued him for libel once upon a time, because he said some pretty libelous things about her when he was opposition leader. And yet, somehow, they're able to put all of that aside and uh, rise to the occasion, which everybody did last Thursday. So that was really nice. It, it really was. And I'll just I'll add very quickly, you know, it's... Uh, it can't always be like that, right? And it's it's never going to be like that all the time. And it it you know it it does make those moments I think a bit more valuable. Um, and and you you do get the sense of um, 
even if it's just for a little bit, just a reminder that actually they might be on uh, different sides, but they're all playing the same game and they are rivals and not enemies. So here, here. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. And we also, of course, want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly dash newsletter. And I think we write about the farewell addresses this week in the newsletter, do we not? Yes, indeed, we do. Very good. Well, as JMM just uh, presaged a moment ago, here come the quotes of the week. And we're both going back to Kathleen Wynne's farewell address in the Ontario legislature. And I'm going to focus on a very bizarre moment. For some reason, <laughs> I don't know, I guess you just missed it, but she overlooked or missed the reference in her speech, the former premier did, to her life partner, Jane Roundthwaite. She was making her thank yous. She was thanking everybody under the sun. She forgot Jane. And she realized her mistake only after she had finished speaking. So she got up again after the applause. She begged the indulgence of the speaker for more time and finished up with this. Of course, Jane was in my speech. And as I have said so many times, there's no Kathleen Wynne in politics without Jane Rounthwaite. So thank you for your love, your support, and I'm really sorry I missed that line. I love you. That's Ontario's first female premier, Kathleen Wynne, finishing strong the second time around. Uh, so I'm just going to be a procedure dork here for one moment and say uh, it's a great thing that MPPs have a right whenever they're speaking in the legislature to correct their record. Uh, so <laughs> Kathleen Wynne, one last time, correcting her remarks uh, for posterity. Uh, as I say, my quote of the week, also from uh, Kathleen Wynne's farewell speech. Uh, and this, uh, I, I think, says uh, so much about uh, the former premier and, and her vision in politics. This was uh, what she had to say about politicians who uh, brashly claim that they're not uh, like other politicians or that they're not normal politicians. Here's uh, what she had to say. Very few people in our history ever have the honor of serving here. So when the heckle rang out to me a couple of years ago from a new member, why are you even here? While it stung for a moment, as it was intended to do, the answer is very clear and it's very simple. I have been sent here for nearly 19 years to represent the interests of the people I serve. I'm here because I believe that there's dignity in political office. There's dignity in serving as a politician. And so I say to those candidates who seek to be elected for the first time and who might think that the disclaimer, I'm not a real politician, is something that might enhance their image, I ask you to think again. Because denigrating the very office you seek seems to me to be a very short-term strategy destined to do damage to the office. That's Kathleen Wynne speaking uh, in the legislature for perhaps uh, the last time uh, last Thursday. I have always wondered why politicians talk down the profession so much. If one airline said you should fly us, don't fly them because they crash all the time and we don't, all that would do would be getting lots of people asked lots of questions about how safe air traffic was, <laughs> as opposed to encouraging people to engage in air travel. And when you talk down the job as much as some people do, boy, 
And then you wonder why everybody hates politicians and is so cynical about things. That's my little rant for the day. This week's episode of the On Poly podcast was produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Steve.